1: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Master Historian Professor Peter Heather. Professor Heather is Chairman of the Medieval History at King's College London. He is without a doubt one of the leading historians dealing with the ancient world, and today we're discussing his latest book, Why Empires Fall, Rob America, and the Future of the West, co-authored with John Rapley, published by Alan Lane. Welcome, Professor Heather.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here, and I'm glad you find the book interesting enough to want to talk about it. Professor, what is the thesis of the book? Well, the underlying thesis, um, and it came out of a conversation I had with my co-author, who is a modernist, uh, is that we both think that the way that it's... That long lasting imperial systems, I mean, you know, not things that only last for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, but imperial systems that last for centuries, the way that they operate tend to uh, undermine the continued existence of that imperial system as an empire by sponsoring, uh, un- uh, or Acc- accidentally sponsoring economic, political, and Development in the region uh, around the empire uh, so that its original power and is undermined. So, in that sense, uh, empires are unconsciously the architects of their own downfall, at least in the way in which originally created or came into existence.
1: Is the Gibbonesque discourse about the decline of the West? new or decline of empire I should say and, and concomitant decline of the west when employed by contemporaries new isn't something that uh, has been on the radar screen in terms of uh, discourse since at least uh Spengler's decline of the west if not earlier
0: oh certainly so um this is a a well-established trope i think in uh mob um and it focuses kind of on moral morality and sort of willpower, uh, that kind of uh, that kind of area, of human action, I suppose. Um, one of our chief aims, and this is something that I share with my colleague within my room, to try and confront this discourse, but I think it's very substantially misplaced, and it's not understanding what's going on. And, of course, if you don't understand what's going on, you uh, can institute uh, reactions that are not the most helpful that you can think of.
1: Why well, was Gibbon wrong about the causation of the decline of the Roman Empire? Well,
0: the the fundamental fact that he's wrong about, and it's not his fault because it wasn't known, uh, is the supposition that the Empire did, uh economic apogee in the Antifa in the in the second century. This was the great age of empire, and that it was all slowly but surely from that point onwards. Um, and that was a sort of general chronological framework which held good up until about the 90- <laughs> the idea that uh, actually, the political end, the consequence of an economic decline. Um, and it's there in all in textbooks of the early and mid-tree. But what's proved it wrong, fundamentally, uh, is the emergence of a whole new data, which he didn't have access. I mean, Gibbon read absolutely everything that was available, and he read it very carefully. I remember um, seeing uh, a footnote in edition where he says, I don't know where Gibbon's from. Um, um, actually, he had got that from Isidore Seville's History of the Goths. I happened to read it. And I knew exactly where the passage came from. Gibbon read everything and you were... But of course, he didn't have access to the sort of modern, hist- the modern archaeological data set. And it was really the emergence of new techniques in the 1970s, which allowed you for the first time to um, take a broad sample of the demographic and economic health of the countryside that changed everything. Because the Roman economy is no other. If you're looking to judge its health or otherwise, how is agriculture doing? Uh, And what is the demographic? date of the countryside, you know, Roman did firmly rooted. Sorry, sorry about that in agriculture. Um and by the nineteen seventies, you've got techniques that allow you to take a pretty good sample using densities of now dated pottery evidence. You can date Roman pottery uh, because its sequence is very well known, very well established by the nineteen seventies, to within a decade. And you can see how much pottery there is. You, and densities of pottery gives you a sense of numbers of settlements. And so you can actually take a sample of um, the density of rural populations for the first time from the 1970s onwards. Um, and people start to employ these all over the Roman pottery. other eras apart from the Romans. At the same time, the uh, archaeologists are getting very excited by this you know, technique, as rightly they should. But what emerged from this is that with a few, a very few, uh, I should emphasize really the 4th century AD, a period in the political dismemberment, is the moment of maximum activity in the rural economy. More people doing more. In other words, imperial GDP, right, if you take the empire as a whole, must be at a maximum in the fourth century of the entire what half a millennium this. In other words, the, the Gibbonian prosperity in the second century, followed by Doyle but then the like and then political dismemberment. it's just wrong. And you know, this is the single most exciting uh fact you have emerged um, in a hundred years, I think.
1: Uh is that the question of scale, the reason why comparing the modern West with the Roman Empire, a bit of a stretch?
0: There are lots of stretches. You know, that in a sense, we're using the Roman Empire to think about the modern West a bit rather than claiming that they are exactly parallel lives. Uh, that would not be a sensible thing to do, and it's not really what we're we're trying to do, I think. Um, but I don't think that, the question of scale is... Um, so far off, in fact, and that I think as an excellent question, I suspect you're uh, uh, loading it deliberately in my direction, because the the thing about the Roman Empire uh, is that you have to factor in the um, question of speech. So the, the Roman Empire runs from uh, Hadrian's Wall to Iraq on its longest diagonal, uh, and that even in modern terms, you know, that's quite a lengthy journey. Uh, but, of course, uh, the real measure of distance had was late uh, in the ancient world. Well, the, the sort of uh, average maximum speed that you could manage would be something like uh, 25 miles a day or 40 kilometers a day. Uh, so in, in terms of actual distance as measured in terms of human journeying, then the Roman Empire is much bigger than it looks. Uh, And in fact, I've done, for the purposes of teaching, I've done some rough estimates. Um, It takes several months of average speed land journeying to get from one end of the Roman Empire to another. Uh, It's actually bigger than the modern Western Empire, I think. In reality, in the sense that it would take you longer to get from one end to the other, uh, even if you left outside airplanes, so uh, it is as big within its own context. Uh, I think as the the modern West is, but I, I absolutely take your point. There are some very substantial differences between the two that really do need to be factored in. You can't just say one is the equivalent to the other.
1: In your discussion of the post-Roman West after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Um, You did not discuss or seem to minimalize, and correct me if I'm wrong in that, in this instance, uh, the aspect of widespread economic decline, a.k.a. the Ward-Perkins thesis.
0: Um, Yes, we're we're much more focused on the process uh, of unraveling um, in why empires fall um, than necessarily in outcomes. but uh, yeah, certainly, I mean, I think this is, the, uh, this is the other side of the coin, the same coin of late Roman prosperity, is that it becomes clear that in large parts of the former Roman West, after the empire disappears, you get a substantial demographic and economic decline. Uh, how big that is is a little bit difficult to measure um, in terms of you know, fall off of population and so on, because the the dateable late Roman pottery gives you a proxy measure of the size of population in the late Roman period. And, and it's, you know, you can tell things like the size of the population of uh, late Roman Britain in the fourth century uh, is as big as the population of Britain will be uh, or it will only get that big again, um, just on the eve of the Black Death around about 1300, after a great deal of uh, economic, expansion, economic expansion after the Norman Conquest in the twelfth, 13th uh, century. So you can you can do sort of rough mag- magnitude scale like that from the pottery evidence, but the pottery evidence from the the post Roman period is much less well known and much less easy to identify. Um what is very clear is that over most of the post Roman West there is a great deal of economic simplification uh, in terms of much less exchange and trade. Um that is uh, that is crystal clear and, and no one doubts that. I think no one doubts that there's some substantial economic and demographic decline here. Very difficult to put a number
1: on it. In the book, you have a detailed and intricate discussion of the concepts of core, periphery, inner periphery, and outer periphery. Can you explicate a little bit of that for
0: the audience? Yes, uh, certainly so. Um, it's uh, a model that I had in my head. I've had in my head all for 20 odd years, really. Um, actually, I'm mistaking it. More like 30, time flies when you're having fun. Um, a way of trying to think about um the patterns of development that are visible uh, in the roman period and in fact across the first millennium a.d more generally when you look at um, uh, the evidence of both text and archaeology in fact and that is you have uh when you've got these imperial systems operating you have uh, a core area of maximum development which is usually defined by the formal imperial borders, then you have uh, an immediate inner peripheral area uh, which is in quite intense relationship with that uh, empire. Um, in the Roman case, uh, and this is uh, work done by other people that I was thinking that you've got uh, a zone up to about 100 kilometers wide along Rome's European frontiers, where In the sort of um, period, well, 300 years from around the birth of Christ down to the fourth century, you see um, very substantial changes in terms of uh, greater numbers of settlements, uh, more intensive agriculture, uh, greater uh, size of population, um, more substantial political structures. That's where the texts come in. They show you that. Uh, And that inner zone is the zone that's in most intense relationship with the Roman imperial system where the Romans are interfering all the time um with policies that uh, both uh reward friends and discourage enemies, manipulate political relationships or but but offer economic incentives too. Uh so you have that inner zone. But then you have an outer zone where um you're not seeing everyday exchanges between the Roman imperial system and this zone beyond the kind of 100-kilometer fringe, uh, but you are seeing substantial exchanges, because uh, the kind of exchanges that do have effect over the long term, um, and although that uh, border area, the outer periphery, is not uh, neither so intends to be changed or transformed by its relationship with the empire. Uh, Nonetheless, you do see some substantial change within it. And although it's not in such close relationship with the empire, it is in some relationship with it. So I had this kind of tripartite model uh, in my head for a a long time. And it was basically the idea of centre and periphery is very well established. But I felt that actually putting in the outer, making a distinction between inner periphery and outer periphery was very helpful because it captured both the um, difference in intensities of transformation uh, that take place in those two zones. And it also kind of explains why when you do see exciting disturbances to the broader system as a whole, they tend to come from the outer periphery rather than the inner periphery, because the inner periphery is more controlled um, and it's in a more stable type of relationship with the Roman imperial system. Therefore, it's much harder for groups within the inner periphery to do anything really out of outside the box. I mean, they're, they're not uh, relationships are never complete peaceful. They're always problems, uh, but they're problems within a kind of defined um, set of parameters. Uh, among, I was talking about this with my colleague, John Rackley. Uh, and we were thinking about the way modern imperial systems have worked, the modern Western imperial system, we did feel that actually that um, tripartite vision of the overall system and its core, and its inner periphery and its outer periphery, worked uh, well enough to be worth including um, and worked in the same kind of way. So it's about how intensively Uh, The inner periphery versus the outer periphery Uh, is engaged in producing goods and supplying people or whatever goods and services for the imperial system and then also the degree of transformation that that relationship works. But in the inner periphery, you get a much more substantial transformation as a result of the way the system is working and a less substantial one in the outer periphery.
1: Uh, Speaking of the outer periphery, how did the Huns in the fourth and fifth century AD
0: impact the Roman world? It, in my view, what they do is create a kind of accidental unity uh, amongst the client states of Rome's inner periphery. Uh, the kind of entities that had emerged in Rome's inner periphery by the fourth century, so things like the Gothic Turvini. In the, you know, close to the mouth of the Danube, or the Alamanni, uh, the confluence between the Rhine and the Danube, um, in uh, West Central Europe, uh, they could be a nuisance. They were big enough and stable enough that they couldn't easily be destroyed. They had a sort of long-term continuities. Um, they were a, a regional pain in the rear end occasionally. They were not big enough to challenge or threaten the Roman imperial system as a whole. Nor did it even cross their minds that they might do so. But in my view, what the Huns do is push enough of these central, uh, sorry, these uh, inner peripheral groups uh, accidentally together and operating together to uh, create a much more substantial threat to the continued operation of the Roman imperial system. So, for instance, the uh, Visigothic and Ostrogothic confederations that eventually do create some of the successive states to the Western Roman Empire um, in Spain and some Gaul and Italy, they are new confederations built on Roman soil out of several different groups from the uh, inner periphery, which had previously been politically separate from one another, but the uh, effects of uh, the various different effects of atomic intrusion make the make enough of these inner peripheral groups form together to put together a new confederation that's actually big enough to confront the Roman state more successfully. I mean, the basic test with all these things is: can they stand up in battle to uh, a major Roman field army? They don't necessarily have to win, I think. But can they at least get a draw if they come into head on conflict with a Roman imperial field armies? And whereas none of the uh, inner peripheral client states of the fourth century by themselves could do it, when you put several of them together, the Visigoths, for instance, comprise contingents for about three or four, then they can. And that's that's again changer, I think.
1: Is it not questionable to characterize the Persian state of the 3rd and 4th and 5th century AD as, quote, a superpower competitor, unquote. Was it not, in fact, a mere regional power, unlike Rome? Well, uh, I I
0: certainly know that some of my colleagues who uh, work on this um, do make the point that Rome's resources are much larger than demographic resources um, and economic resources. And that's a perfectly fair point. On the other hand, what the revivified Sasanian Persian state the 3rd century can do, which uh, no one else could do at the time, was actually, and this is before, you know, these new confederations formed when the Europeans did it, they could actually destroy Roman field armies. Uh, you have three major Roman field armies actually destroyed by the Persians in the 3rd century. Uh, You can say in part that's because uh, Rome couldn't concentrate all its forces in the East because uh, that would be be too much exposed uh, on other frontiers. And in that sense, Rome is a bigger power than uh, Persia is, uh, and I would accept that point. But on the other hand, Persia is a superpower competitor because it can actually destroy the maximum size army that Rome can concentrate um, against it in the third century, Uh, and nothing in the European theatre can do that at that time. So, yeah, this perhaps slightly stretching it, but only very slightly stretching it. And I do think it's certainly the case that, you know, we don't really know what it was that the Sassanians did, but they did something new in terms of social, political, Uh, and military and economic mobilization in the Near East uh, that makes Persia a much more effective military power. same raw materials have been around for hundreds of years, but they're organizing in a way that makes it much more effective, and they do, well, they do destroy Roman armies, and large ones, uh, and that that reorganization, um, I think, certainly is a response to the intrusion of Roman power into their own zones and in the previous decades.
1: Why, in your view, is the contemporary West in crisis?
0: Um, To my mind, it's it's very straightforward, um, though um, not very straightforward to know what to do about it. Uh, And that is, if you're thinking about the the generation of new wealth where production is sourced, then we've seen the movement of production away from most of the old centers in the West uh, to new areas of the world. Um, That has not led to any or only to very limited absolute declines of wealth in the West. In fact, for the most part, all we're seeing is a slowdown in the increase. Of wealth in the West. The West is not remotely getting poorer. It's actually that new centers are getting richer, the places where industrial production has moved to. So I think that's one very important constituent part, deindustrialization, if you like. The second part, I think, of the crisis is the uh, internal political effects of uh, the economic changes associated with deindustrialization in the sense that they're very unevenly spread. Because a lot of the development uh, of the new productive capacity in non-Western parts of the planet, that is actually funded by capital, by Western capital, um, by pension funds, by whatever, uh, investment portfolios of different kinds. And... Any Westerners who have pensions, who have enough money to be uh, involved in the investment process, they're still making plenty of money uh, because they're benefiting from the rise of the new industrial centers through the profits that those uh, centers generate. The problem, I think, lies for the traditional Western working classes, who used to be tied into the actual production of wealth by having jobs in manufacturing sectors and whatever. And it's and that traditional grouping that's kind of left high and dry by this. Um, they don't have enough uh, personal wealth about, um, to have either pension funds or personal investment portfolios that allow them to benefit from the new wealth being generated globally. And the kind of well-paid uh, and very satisfying jobs in production that were directly tied into the generation of new wealth, those have disappeared. Uh, And so I think you not only are you seeing a relative decline of overall Western wealth, uh, which actually just may be a good thing for the planet, frankly, uh, but you're seeing a large-scale internal division within Western societies where one group continues to benefit from the new wealth being generated globally and, and another large group is not benefiting I I do think this underlines the kind of uh, broader social division, but it's very evident in modern Western society that takes lots of different forms in different places. It was there in the Brexit debate. It's there very much in uh, the bodies of Trump supporters, for instance, I think, in the States. It's also there in the sort of divide in France and Italy, which has seen very populist Uh, Politicians uh, gaining a great deal of popularity.
1: But would you say that these uh, social and political divisions are something which are new of the last twenty years? I could could be very well argue that these are intrinsic to democratic these divisions, social and economic are uh, intrinsic to democratic capitalist society as a whole and have been present since the mid to late
0: nineteenth century. Um. Well, the the sort of classic, the the classic Marxist analysis obviously lines up capitalist working class, and there is a strong elevated division there. Uh, But the way these things worked out in practice, um, certainly in Britain and, you know, in America too, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, is that there was plenty of wealth to go around in terms of enough to satisfy expectations. So you're traditional and classic working classes um, could expect uh, and did in fact see um, standards of living increase um, generation upon generation. Each generation would substantially and clearly better off than preceding generations. And that didn't mean that there wasn't uh, discontent. That didn't mean that everyone was happy. There are lots of reasons in life for people not to be completely happy, of course. But there was a kind of basic acceptance of the order that the order was dishing out things to most people. But that I think I think that expectation is what the disappearance of industrial production or large-scale industrial production from in the West has undermined. It, it isn't the case anymore that, that succeeding generations can guarantee to be uh, more prosperous than their parents and grandparents. Uh, Indeed, certainly in large parts of the West, that, that isn't true anymore. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I think while divide has always been there, we're seeing a new divide, which is perhaps a, a little bit more um, problematic in terms of it's not clear what to do about it. So, you know, in the old days, divides could be dealt with via uh, pay rises, by improvement conditions healthcare benefits, you know, a whole range of things you can do which ameliorated the divide, I mean, by. and it's uh, if I think about Britain, that's the sort of history of Britain in the 19th through to the sort of 1960s, 1970s, that is what Britain is about. There are social divides there, but there's enough rebridge for organised uh, large-scale uh, working-class groups to um, exact better standard of living over time uh, but if you cut large parts of your population off from participation in the basic generation of wealth um, consigning them to service industries or to uh, social benefits of one kind or another then you're creating them. that's a that's a different level of demand and a different level of problematic
1: yes but would you compare contemporary um... Problems in terms of uh, social divisions, uh, similar to what you had. I think you're old enough to remember what occurred in the mid '70s, where you had industrial action, which had the effect of uh, there being electronic, um, electric outages for three to five days a
0: week. <laughs> yes, the great power cuts of the 1970s. Yes, I remember them very well. Um, uh, that that was already, I think, symptomatic of the the first. Shit, because uh, you know what the the problem there in the 1970s is, where Britain might might be heading currently, namely stagflation, where uh, prices are going up, but uh, actual real wealth is not, um, and that was in response to the first um, oil price hikes uh, of the 1970s that that kind of really entrenched stagflation as a, a phenomenon in the West. Um, uh, and that, of course, was the first stirring of the non-Western periphery realizing what muscle it had, the, the, the oil producers, suddenly realizing that actually, sorry, I was about to say, they had the West over a barrel. It was a very undeliberate, unconscious pun. I do apologize even for thinking it, but either, that was the start of the process. So, in a sense, uh, I think it is the same process uh, that we deferred by the sort of uh, globalization. We deferred uh, the um, effects of the, the rise of peripheral power for a bit in the West, but uh, and that's something that Jill and I argue in the book, but, uh, but this is a process that has been unfolding for, for half a, a half a century i think more or less.
1: you go to great lengths in the book to show that third world migration into the west is more or less quote a good thing unquote but in view of the fact that uh, artificial intelligence is supposed to make x percentage of the existing workforce in the west redundant uh is that um, does that still make sense to have large-scale third world immigration to the west
0: um i think we will Need it? I mean, there's a there's a AI generates a huge uh, question for all of us because um, you know if you make whatever percentage of the workforce redundant, then uh, what are they meant to do? And what is their standard of living to be? And uh, are societies really going to be willing to share wealth? equally amongst those who do things and those who don't do things. I mean, I, I don't know the answer. of these uh, pretend to, but that's a serious issue. Um, there's, there's also uh, there's a lot of hype around AI at the moment, which uh, is impossible to uh, be sure what, where the end result is going to be. All one can say is that in current circumstances, Western societies are faced with democratic patterns. Um, it is only Israel and Iceland, where amongst Western societies, the population is reduce, is replacing itself in each generation. Everywhere else, you've got birth rates are, are so low, which means, and you've also got healthcare improvements, which I say is substantial, which means that you've got less and less people working to support more and more people who are retired. And that is not sustainable. Um, one obvious response to that is to make up the shortfalls in your labor force from migration, which is what a lot of countries in reality are doing, whatever they say in their political discourses. Um, and what is extremely clear uh, is that uh, the kind of migration that's really challenged uh, and undermined the... Uh, West, the old Western domination of wealth production is not migration into the West, but the migration into the new industrial centers uh, of the third world. Um, so it's missing the point. The economic data is very clear. Migrants into Western countries punch above their weight. They produce more than they consume, and they're straightforwardly an economic benefit. That doesn't mean that there aren't issues, so I wouldn't pretend that for a moment the real world is a difficult place. There are issues of cultural integration. uh, The the influx of immigrants can undermine wages in certain sectors, that is true, but the overall effect is actually beneficial. And the big problem is the demographic transition in the West because uh, we do not have, you know, do we really want our grandparents to be looked after by machines? They tried that in Japan and they give it up. And actually, the first kind of breach in Japan's very fierce anti immigrant regime has been precisely to provide people to work in in the healthcare sectors, uh, looking after the elderly. So, you know, there's, there's a real big issue there. And um, I'm not saying I know what the answer is, but I certainly whenever I see a kind of migration debate in the UK, which does not talk about um, the demographic transition happening currently uh, and, you know, only halfway through in the modern Western world where everyone is living longer um, but we're absolutely insisting on maintaining the same retirement regime, if that, if that is not included in the discussion of migration, then you've, you've got a, a a discourse that is insufficient, that is not seeing the problem in the round. and thinking about the problem in the round, I think.
1: Why do you believe that uh, what what they characterize as appeasement uh, of China is a good strategy for the West to follow?
0: I don't actually think that we quite oh, advocate appeasement. Uh, I think we advocate strong, careful dialogue. and what we don't, uh, obviously, um, and what we strongly argue against is a kind of comfort, uh, sort of blighted confrontation of China. Uh, and there are several reasons for that. The first is, of course, that uh, we're on the other side of globalization already, and Western and Chinese economies are already deeply interlinked. And in fact, when uh, Trump instilled his uh, economic war with China. The effects are much worse in America than they were in China because America lost markets and didn't affect Chinese production and Chinese sold elsewhere. The second reason would be uh, that uh, Chinese assistance is required for the really serious problems. I mean, to my mind, the really serious problems are pollution and climate um, and environment. And, you know, there's no one country uh, that's big enough to have much of an effect on these kinds of problems if it doesn't act in consolidation with uh, everyone else. I mean, nearly everyone's got to act together to have any kind of useful effect, and to my mind, are the big issues of the day. The third reason is that China is not uh, attempting large... Scale, um, expansionist, directly expansionist policies towards its neighbors. It's kind of, you know, flexing its biceps in the China Sea a bit. Uh, it's making noises about Taiwan, but it's not actually, uh, and they haven't done yet, and I suspect it won't uh, engage in um, expansionist military adventurism of the kind that Putin has engaged in, for um, and certainly to assume that it would uh, is a rash thing to do. Um, so I think, uh, and, before, and then there's a fourth reason, which is really that you know, China is yesterday's problem. Um, Chinese, uh, the, the, the fundamental leaders that we're always working with in the book is that political and military power is closely, closely linked to economic power. Uh it's, you know, Economic power plus one generation is when you see, uh, for, its, uh, for its implications to work itself out, that's when you see political and military power. Well, you know, the Chinese economy is already slowing, and it's blowing for a kind of release. Um It's picked a lot of hanging fruit. Its population is declining because of the previous demographic policies that's in enacted, and the new engines of growth in the global economy are not in China at all, and um, well, uh, he, he may be out by one, it might be six out of 10 rather than, but I think it's seven out of 10 of the world's currently fastest growing economies are, are in Africa, they're not in China. You know, this is a this is a much broader transition than China. China is not the epicentre of what's going on. It's, uh, you've got to understand that it's a much bigger phenomenon and it's not over yet. And so to kind of demonize China and to focus too much on China rather than seeing China in the context of this broader gagian transformation, I mean, that's incorrect. And it's also, I think, very uh, unhelpfully unrealistic uh, in the sense that Chinese help is going to be absolutely crucial um, in resolving the, the problems that we all face.
1: Why do you say, quote, the West cannot make itself great again in the old terms, unquote. It, it
0: comes back to this um, very simple uh, underlying point that power uh, is related to uh, military political power is clearly linked to economic power. Uh, that old classic, the, the classic, all the president's men, uh, Watergate Investigation, where they have the watchword, follow the money. And that's uh, our watchword, too. it should be everyone's watchword. See where wealth is collecting. That's where the centers of economic, uh, that's where the centers of political and military power will be, or strategic, if you like, strategic power. You know, when the British Empire was the economically dominant unit in the globe in the 19th century, then uh, Britain was the dominant global power. Uh, when America transcended it in the 20th century, America became the dominant global power. The West was uh, reached its apogee of sort of collective world dominance um, in the year 2000, at which point 80% of global GDP was concentrated in the West. I mean, that's astonishing. A fifths of the wealth of the world consumed and generated Uh, in the West. But, you know, that's gone down to 60% immediately after the crash of 2008 and it is slowly but surely declining, uh, carrying on declining now. And not because the West is getting poorer, but because other parts of the world are getting richer. So you cannot recreate a level of Western dominance that was predicated on uh, a colossal 80% of global GDP when the Western share of GDP is declining under sixty, and will presumably, there's every reason to suppose it will continue to decline subsequently. So you can't you can't do it. In the same way, the sort of um, tectonic plates of the world economy have shifted, and you can't shift them back again, and not easily, or, or I think at all. I mean, not in anything that we can envisage. So um, the collective West has got to get used to the fact that while still very wealthy and while still very important, and it's likely to remain so for the foreseeable future in global terms, it does not exercise the same kind of global reach that it did um, in the 50 years after the end of World War II, you might say, well, that's the kind of era of massive economic and therefore political and military domination. If you
1: wanted people to take one thing away from your book, Professor, what would it be?
0: (laughs) I think it's that, really. Uh, I mean, the reception of the book is, uh, has been quite interesting to me, and I guess I've been slightly naive. I mean, what interested me is the model of the way empires work to undermine their own existence by developing the periphery. And in intellectual terms of a historian, uh, that's the thing that so interested me, uh, and finding that one can with a degree of Reasonable plausibility argued that the same thing is going on in the modern world as went on in first millennium AD Europe is just intellectually exciting. But I realized what people are interested in, of course, is the future of the world for them and for their children and for their grandchildren. So they're more interested in the kind of consequences of this beautiful abstract intellectual model is what mostly interested me uh, in generating the book. And I think Um, If you were asking me to think about that dimension of things, then uh, the acceptance of the fact that um, Western economic dominance can never be again what it was in the 19th and 20th centuries culminating uh, in around um, the year 2000 with this colossal 80% of world global GDP figure, that it can never be like that again. That doesn't mean that everyone's getting poorer. In fact, the the Western economy, even the economy of post brexit Britain still continues to limp into growth figures, positive growth figures. Um, We're not all getting poorer, but the rest of the world is getting richer and the world has changed around us and we need to um, accept that, um, not try to restore impossible old models but to think about how to make the best of the new conditions, because you can't you can't turn the clock back. These uh, structures have moved. We played a major role in, in moving them ourselves by supplying all the capital that has developed production elsewhere on the planet. So be it. So let's think more positively uh, about where we go from here.
1: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Heather, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Heather, very much. Thank you so much for having
0: me.